You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 1, 26 to 31. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Indeed, evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. My name is Michael Winters, and I lead the arts ministry here. Um, So, of course, Genesis 1 is really foundational for what we do in the arts ministry, and that's probably why I was asked to speak today. But as I prepared, I found that I mostly wanted to talk about birds. Um, And then when I realized that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to consider the birds, uh, I I feel pretty good about it. So, um, and I'll first share some, some bird news with you. Um, earlier this week, U.S. officials um, moved 11 bird species and two fish species from the endangered list to the extinct list. Um, and this includes the ivory-billed woodpecker, which we have a picture of, um, which at one time was the most populous woodpecker in North America, but it hasn't been seen since 1944. In Genesis 1.28, God blesses the first man and woman and tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And this is called the cultural mandate. But before these verses are primarily about um, creating culture as we think of culture, and certainly before they are about making art, they're really about Um, how we relate to God's creation, how we relate to to birds and fish. Um, This is humanity's first job. And another way to say first is to say primary. This call to be fruitful and multiply and rule was never revoked throughout the world, uh, throughout the Bible, though along with everything else it changed after sin entered the world. Pastor Jamal will come up in a few minutes and preach more broadly about what these verses might mean for us after the fall and living towards a new creation. Uh, But I think 
This is still humanity's first and primary call to responsibly live in God's creation. So it's appropriate to ask, I think, you know, how are, how are we doing um, with this responsibility God has given us? And so to do that, I want to show you one graph and one photograph um, that might give us a start at answering that question, or at least stir up some problems that Jamal's sermon can resolve. Um, so both the graph and the photograph suggest that humans are in fact ruling, though maybe not in the way that God intended. Um, it's also good to remember that we really live in an unprecedented time. Um, you know, for example, um, during most of our lifetimes, humanity, the global population, went from being primarily rural to primarily urban. And this has never been the case before. And kind of in a similar way, this graph um, shows kind of how we live in unprecedented time. These colorful lines there are um, shown like human-made materials. So it's, it's mostly concrete and stuff we build roads out of. And then that black horizontal line represents all biomass, meaning the weight of all living things, you know, including trees and plants and all this. So you can see that right about now, 2020, roughly in the decades or something, you know, of course these are big estimates, but it's thought that human-made materials now outweigh all living things. Isn't that crazy? Um, so indeed, you know, it could be said that we are filling the earth and so doing it um, vastly faster than any time before. So that gives a very wide angle view of, of how we're um, filling the earth. And now I want to zoom way in and uh, think about a small cluster of islands way out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's a real place, it's called Midway. And it's about midway between California and Japan. Um, during World War II, it saw some action as a refueling station for U.S. planes crossing the Pacific. But now midway has sort of been taken over by albatrosses. And um, something really disturbing is happening to some of these baby albatrosses that are, are there. So um, I, I'm going to show you this picture. It's really quite upsetting. So I almost want to apologize for showing it to you. Um, but I think it's important as we consider our call to rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air. Um, so there's the image. Um, it wasn't arranged in any way, but found as it is a photograph. It's made by a photographer named Chris Jordan, and has many other examples of the same phenomenon on his website. And he also made a documentary film called Albatross. Um, I'd like to read you what he said about this photography project. The detritus of our mass consumption surfaces in an astonishing place, inside the stomachs of thousands of dead baby albatrosses. The nesting chicks are fed lethal quantities of plastic by their parents who mistake the floating trash for food as they forage over the vast polluted Pacific Ocean. This is still him talking. For me, kneeling over their carcasses is like looking into a macabre mirror. These birds reflect back an appallingly emblematic result of the collective trance of our consumerism and runaway industrial growth. I love this sentence. Like the albatross, we first world humans find ourselves lacking the ability to discern anymore what is nourishing. 
from what is toxic to our lives mm. and our spirits. Choked to death on our waist, the mythical albatross calls upon us to recognize that our greatest challenge lies not out there, but in here. So I think the photographer is basically calling us to confession and repentance. We're being challenged to discern what is truly nourishing for our own lives and the lives of all God's creatures, because truly all of our lives are interconnected. And you know, it's like a plastic bottle gets thrown on the sidewalk here, and um, that goes to the storm drain, which goes to Barrow Street, which goes to Ohio, and goes to Mississippi, and goes to the Gulf of Mexico, and apparently can end up in the belly of a baby albatross. Um, so our physical world is interconnected, and, and uh, we're interconnected with it. But the point is not merely don't litter, so that's a good start. Uh, the point I want to make more so is try to shift our understanding about where we are. Whose planet is this anyway? Can we see God's creation as God's creation? And not just the sunsets and flowers, but you know what's going on in Midway Island as well. You know, the whole of it. Um, truly the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he loves his world. It's the world that he so loved that he gave his one and only begotten son. And as Genesis 1 makes plain, he's given us serious responsibility here. So I think the encouragement I want to leave you with and that Jamal will continue to develop is this question, um, can we see our place in the earth anew? Can we own our identities, uh, own this calling uh, to be stewards, to be caretakers, to be responsible agents of creative power? Can we see ourselves all around us as images of God? It's the body of Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Let's praise the Lord for Michael Winters. What a uh, thoughtful reflection. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to dive into today's text with uh, what Michael just set up for us uh, very well and talk about a little more about this cultural mandate. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness towards us. I pray, Father, that you would help us even now. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. If we could put that uh, last quote that Michael uh, in question, uh, that Michael posed on the screen, I think is just such a a great question and one in which uh, we've kind of built out uh, the rest of our time around. Uh, And the question is, can we see our place on earth anew as stewards, as caretakers, as responsible agents of creative power? as images of God, as the body of Christ. Last week, we talked about the Imago Day, part one, and this week, we want to continue to talk about it. Last week, we looked at verses 26 and 27. This week, I want to uh, focus on 28 through 31. And as we talked about the Imago Day, or what it means to be created in the image of God, last week, we talked about Uh, that at the most basic level, it means that God created us to be um, in his authentic likeness, that he created us to be rational beings, beings that have, uh, as we receive this image, um, intellect, uh, ability to think, uh, 
an ability to make moral choices. We also talked about how God made us to be like him and the fact that we were created as relational beings. Before the beginning of time, God um, was there. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving and receiving love. And he created us and fashioned us as humans from that love to receive that love as well as to give that love. Um, And we also uh, talked about as image bearers how um, God has uh, created us to be regal, to to fill the earth, to rule it as his co-regents, as his royal ambassadors. And so today I want to look at what has been called uh, the cultural mandate, because in essence, and there's all kinds of definitions on what it means, what culture means and what it means to have a culture or to create culture. But I like what Andy Crouch says at the end of the day, um, culture is simply answering the question of what we do with the world. It's what we do with the world. It's all of what we, what we make it. And so I want to look at verse 28 through 31, similarly to what we did last week through three simple movements. The first is, what did God intend by giving this cultural mandate, this, this commission to go and to subdue the world, to rule over it? And then second, how does, this, how does the fall impact the mandate? And then thirdly, we'll look at what does fulfilling the mandate look like for disciples of Jesus today? What does fulfilling the mandate look like for disciples of Jesus today? And so as we look at these three uh, movements, we want to see that God um, gave this mandate to mankind. And in this mandate, we see these kind of three uh, movements. And the first movement that we see is that God blesses mankind. Look at the Bible. Look at verse 28. After creating Adam and Eve, it says that he blesses them. He blesses them. And I think that that's important to remember that the first act of God relating to mankind is a blessing. It's a blessing. The first recorded thing that God does is he blesses us. And what does that say about God? And what does that say about how he relates to us? That the first recorded act of God to us is to bless us. And some of us, we have this picture of God being this, this judge who is, who is, is mean or maybe even, even evil or overbearing. But if we go back to the Bible and we look at this God who created us, we see this theme throughout the Bible of God blessing us. And even before he sends us, even before he commissions us, he blesses us. But second, we see that God blesses them, us in a specific way. He gives us a mandate. He commissions us. And the way that he commissions us is to increase the population of the world by spreading his image through spreading his glory, through spreading his glory. He tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to go and to make the earth full of his image, full of his glory. And then third, uh, we see that he calls them to subdue it, to subdue the earth and to rule over the, the fish of the sea. And some uh, translations talk, use words of, of dominating. The, 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 the fish of the sea, the world in a creative order. 
But this word subdue is not meant to be violent. In the Hebrew, it is more gentle than it is violent. And we got to remember that this is before the fall. This is before sin enters into the world, right? And so everything that God has done up to this point has been fashioned in love and out of love and with creativity and through the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, when God calls mankind to subdue the earth, he's not calling them to be to be violent. Uh, the tool that God is, is, uh, is kind of using here with his words to do is more of a gardener's tool than it is a grenade. And here's where uh, all of my vegan friends can rejoice. Because here in the text, we see that God uh, calls Adam and Eve uh, to eat. But what he commissions them to eat is every fruit containing seed and every green plant. That was intended for food. Amen, somebody. So my vegan friends are really excited as they don't see a commissioning to eat beef here. Amen. But before you get too excited, I'll just point you to God talking to Peter in the book of Acts and giving him a vision. And there was every kind of creeping thing as well as beef on a sheet. And he called him to eat what was on the sheet. Amen. I'll have some barbecue after service. Yes, I will. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Yes, he is good. The point of the mandate is that God has packed within creation and within this world wonderful resources for humans to discover and to create things. And what is glorious about this passage and what's glorious about the opening chapters of Genesis is that you see this God who is not only created creation in a beautiful way and just surprising humanity throughout, but he's also packing into creation so much beauty, so much richness, so that um, his daughters and his sons can discover it and use their creative power to make things um, following their father's footsteps that that are beautiful. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, The Bible just, and it's almost randomly speaks of a a river that is flowing and that is a source of four other rivers. And these rivers are flowing through lands and that underneath the land, the text says there is gold. And that from this gold that the uh, underneath the the land is, it is pure. And then it talks about um, other uh, materials and minerals that are packed underneath the land. And I'm not exactly sure why the Holy Spirit inspired these verses to be in the Bible, but I think it's so neat that God created the earth and that underneath the earth are all of these treasures. And this is a reminder that God has packed the world with wonderful possibilities. And as God's image bearers, we have potential all around us. And then not only has God packed the world with all these possibilities, but that he's also packed humanity with creativity, with potential, with skills to make things beautiful. But then we see the fall comes and we see that the fall impacts uh, not only man, but it impacts the created world. In Genesis chapter three, we see that Eve is deceived by the serpent along with Adam. And the serpent, who they were supposed to rule, rules them through cunning and deceitful ways. And he leads them by causing them to undervalue God's 
goodness and to overvalue their place in creation. And before the fall, Adam and Eve were able not to sin. Um, They were able not to sin, meaning that God created them and surrounded them with his glory, and with his beauty in such a magnificent way and his presence in such a magnificent way that they were able not to sin. Um, And that's what makes the fall and them sinning against God so flagrant and so worthy of being cursed because they walked with God in a way and experienced his presence in a way that was so thick, so pure, so beautiful, that in order to go uh, uh, to sin, um, it had to be the most flagrant of rebellion. It had to be intentional in such a, a stark way. And we see as a result of the fall, what happens, a universal A comprehensive curse occurs and labor becomes painful, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. But we also see that even though man becomes refracted, bent inwardly because of their sin, that God does not retract his love from them. We see that God makes the first sacrifice in the Bible and he covers them with skins of with animal skins. But from then on, all creation becomes impacted. As Paul says in Romans chapter one, speaking of humanity, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. And not only is mankind impacted, but the whole world is. Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, verse 22, for we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now, with labor pains until now. And the pictures that uh, Michael showed us a few minutes ago points us to the whole earth groaning. All of creation is impacted by the fall. The animal kingdom is impacted by the fall. Um, All of uh, ecology, all all of our systems is impacted. That's why the earth quakes. That's why there's tornadoes and hurricanes. That's why there's all manners of disease and a pandemic. Because sin's curse is on the world. And even though sin impacted goodness, it didn't completely erase it. And as Christians, this is why we get excited about what God is doing. Because we know that sin does not have the the final word. This gospel, this good news, this message about Jesus points us to the reality that God is going to make all things new. And notice what I said. The Bible says that all things will become new. God isn't simply going to fix what's wrong. And he isn't going to take us back to the garden. What God is doing is a new thing. It's actually a better thing than the garden. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9, it gives us such a beautiful picture of what's to come. The prophet talks about how one day, once again, because of the Messiah, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and an infant will play besides the cobra's pit, putting his hand into the den and not getting bit. And God's glory, Isaiah 
tells us, will fill the earth. And we, as God's image bearers, will be restored to that regal position of both kings and queens. And we will rule all of creation. That's what we believe as Christians. That is our hope. So what does this cultural mandate, this call to subdue and to rule the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply, look like on this side of the fall? Well, there's a a wonderful book uh, called Art and Faith, which is written by uh, Makato Fujimari. And in his book, he introduces to his his audience this uh, beautiful uh, art-making form uh, from a Japan called Kintsugi. Kintsugi is the art of repairing broken pottery by reassembling ceramic pieces with minerals like gold or platinum. The word is formed from two Japanese words, kent meaning golden and sugi meaning uh, to repair or to join together. The art creates a new, the valuable pottery, which now becomes more beautiful and more valuable than the original unbroken vessel. Kintsugi is likely to have been refined out of a tea culture of the 16th century. And the historical tale speaks of uh, Hosokawi, who was one of the key uh, tea masters of that era. And he was preparing tea for a warlord. And the tea master's young attendant dropped an invaluable piece of teaware, and the warlord um, was about to punish the attendant for breaking one of his favorite teawares into five pieces. And at that time, the warlord raised his hand to uh, punish the servant, but the tea master intervened, and he began singing a poem that echoed a ninth century Japanese poem. And the improvised uh, version used a romance poem between two childhood friends courting each other as adults. But as he was singing it, it, he uh, turned a phrase that transformed the romance into sacrificial mercy toward the young servant. And at that moment, the tea master, by singing this poem, basically atoned for the young servant and took responsibility, saying... I will be the one who is blamed for this mistake. The legend goes that it was so artfully done, it was so clever that it spared the servant's life. And later, the tea master arranged for five pieces of pottery to be reconnected using this Japanese technique, um, taking gold and aligning it throughout the cup. And the warlord, when he saw it, was taken aback and was well-pleased. And this started a new tradition called Kintsugi. And I think that this is a, a beautiful picture of what the gospel of Jesus does. The gospel of Jesus takes our broken world. It takes us as broken image bearers because of the fall. And it makes us new. God fills our life with the gold of the gospel. And he fills this world with the gold of the gospel, not only restoring us, but making us better than we were because now we know what it means to be redeemed. And as image bearers, 
we need to constantly be reminded that even though we live in a fallen world, that we serve a God who did not allow the end of the story to be about us being fallen or us being cracked or the world being cracked. But we serve a God who throughout the scriptures is reminding us that he is making all things new. And as Christians on this side of the fall, to be an image bearer means to learn to see the world and every single human being as one who is in the process and who has the capacity through the power of the Holy Spirit to be made better than they were before. God wants to fill your cracks with the gold of the gospel. God wants to fill your relationships with the gold of the gospel. God wants to fill your marriage with the gold of the gospel. God wants to fill how you see your body with the gold of the gospel. God wants you to see how you, how you see your work with the gold of the gospel. We need a Kintsugi theology, a theology that looks for opportunities in our world to transform brokenness into beauty. Now, I want you to notice how the first image bearers were called to subdue the the earth. Um, But the things that they're called to subdue are really ordinary things. They're not uh, extraordinary things. Adam and Eve was given the commission to subdue livestock, which is in abundance, trees, and the earth. In the same way as Christians on this side of the fall, when we talk about this cultural mandate, we want to understand that God is calling us to be faithful and to subdue, to rule the ordinary things of life, to pay attention to the ordinary rhythms of our life, to care deeply about the things that we most often want to just overlook and look past. In her short but powerful book, Julie Canalis soulfully reflects on the Genesis account, and she writes this. In the Genesis account, God is pictured as a temple builder who is constructing his house. There's a parallel between six days of creation and building the building of a temple. But here's a twist. What is God's temple? Where is his majesty, his presence, his sacred dwelling? His temple is the earth. This earth now takes on a supreme significance as the place to worship God. Ordinary life on earth is temple life, worshipful. Everywhere is a place of communion with God. The limited, finite creature who was put in this garden is gently placed there to work and to keep it. Everywhere is a place of communion with God. I love it. I love it. Brother Lawrence, in his wonderful book, The Practice of the Presence of God, writes this, we ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. And I guess my invitation to you today as we think about this first mandate, the first command that is given to mankind, which is to fill the earth 
and to subdue it, which is more of a picture of gardening than it is industrial. Um, that God is inviting us today to slow down and to give thought to how he might be inviting us to create, to care for, and to cultivate things in our everyday life. I believe that God is inviting us to subdue the ordinary things of life in such a way that it gives him glory. The little things. And I believe that God is inviting us as a body to to take a step in that direction, in the direction of creating, in a direction of caring, in a direction of of cultivating, and not necessarily a leap. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says has a small verse, which I think we often overlook as trivial, but I think it is so powerful. And I think if we are going to be gritty disciple makers who fill up our city, that this is the key. It is cultivating the small things in our life with thoughtfulness, carefulness, and love. I think that our world is so industrial, so focused on efficiency, and sometimes just getting stuff up rather than the quality of getting it up, that when we slow down, to actually care about what is in front of us and to take time to fashion it and to cultivate it as an act of worship to God, that people will be moved and notice. And I think that's why we all felt what Michael Winters did today. Michael came in the strength of the Holy Spirit, and he does not like public speaking, okay? I really had to... (laughs) work hard on getting him to do that. And every time he speaks, I'm moved because you can tell that he gives whatever he does is less is more. And he spends time cultivating and fashioning and creating. And he offers it as a gift to the Lord. And I think that's what God is inviting us to in our everyday life, to tend to whatever we're called to do, knowing that God is present and that whatever he has put in front of us, he can be glorified for when we do it out of a place of love. So what is God inviting you to cultivate, to care about, to take care of? What task? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or drink, you do it for the glory of God. You do it to make God known or seen. You do it as image bearers, knowing that he created you in his likeness. How much more can God be glorified if you take time doing laundry, (laughs) the dishes, mowing, writing a thank you letter, baking a cake for a neighbor, and you did it with intentionality, knowing that God is with you, he is watching you, he loves you, and that he created every single thing in this earth out of a place of love. How could that transform the way you serve your friends, your family, your neighbor, your boss? Theologian Hannah Anderson estimated 
that she would have spent, um, that she would have created 50,000 meals for her family throughout her lifetime. And she points out that this is not an insignificant thing, that God uses her making meals for her family to nourish her family and as an act of love to feed her family. And in the same way, when we pause and we think about this peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I'm making for my twins or for my kids, that God has provided for us and that I get to provide for them, that small act of love can transform the way that I see God and the way that I see the world. I'm reminded by hip-hop artist, uh, Christian artist Flame, who in his uh, album, Our World Redeemed, uh, talked about being lost as a young man and one day realizing that God was pursuing him through the way that his parents loved him all his life. And that his parents' love was a small but broken picture of God's love for him. Slowing down to create and cultivate and care, it emulates our Father. It emulates the Spirit. It emulates the Son. God created work and all work, even if it doesn't feel like it can become sacred and it is important as it can help us to love our neighbor and to serve others. So my call today is simply to slow down enough to create, to cultivate, and to care. When you slow down to create, to cultivate, and to care, it gives you space to contemplate God's goodness. It gives you space to be thoughtful as you seek to serve someone else. It gives you space to enjoy the little things in life. Slowing down enough to create, cultivate, and to care can give you the space to appreciate God's laws of seed time and harvest. Slowing down enough to cultivate, to create, and to care could help you to become a more healthy human being. It can help you to appreciate the albatrosses. It can help you to appreciate all the wonderful things that fly, that creep, or that crawl even the ones that you're afraid of. The cultural mandate lived out today sounds a lot like Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7, where God tells the prophet to his people who are essentially imprisoned in Babylon to build houses and to live in them, to plant gardens and to eat their produce, to multiply there. He says, do not decrease to pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you thrive. That's what our mandate looks like after the fall. It looks like us taking time to cultivate, to create, and to care for God's creation in a thoughtful way in the midst of an industrial, busy, efficient society us taking on the posture of gardeners so that people will notice and be reminded that we are stewards of God's creation. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20, Jesus gives us a commission that we call the Great Commission. And he tells us not only to create, cultivate, 
and to care for things, but he calls us to create, cultivate, and to care for people. He tells us to go and to make disciples of every ethnicity, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus expands the cultural mandate um, and he calls us to, to make disciples, to take time and to spend time with people using our creative energy to love people in such a way that they would come to love God and be eternally rescued from his wrath so that they can live an abundant life. I don't think that is by mistake in the Gospel of Luke that after the resurrection of Jesus, that out of all the things that Jesus and all the occupations that he could have appeared as, that Jesus appears as a gardener. That the women at the tomb, they look past him because he looks like a gardener. Looks like a gardener. And this is just a reminder that Jesus is not only our Lord and our Savior, but he is the true vine. He is a gardener. He is patient with us. The Father is pruning us. And the only way that we bear fruit is by abiding in him, remembering that he has saved us from the fall and that he is preparing for us a place that is more beautiful than the world we now live in and more beautiful than the garden that we first received. God is not fixing our world. God is creating a new one, and we get to partake in it. Glory be to his name. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit Sojourn Church dot com slash midtown.